Hello and welcome to One to Grow On. My name is Hallie Casey. And I'm Chris Casey, Hallie's dad. March is Agriculture Month. We are an agriculture podcast. And to celebrate March, we are collaborating with three awesome podcasts that talk about food and farming that you may have heard, you may not have. This podcast is the Sorceress Podcast. That's Sorceress with the U-S-O-U-R-C-E, which is an amazing pun, I gotta say. It's hosted by Colleen King and Carolyn Kissick of the Bay Area. Sorceress uses an intersectional lens to talk about supply chains in a really cool way and in a way that I have not really heard anyone else doing this, particularly in podcasts. It's a really cool show. This episode is about Sims McCormick and Rob Connect of Real Oyster Cult in Boston, Massachusetts. We hope you enjoy it. If you want to find out about more really cool podcasts about gardening, plant science, food, and farming, you can follow at Food Farm Pod, or you can post or look at the hashtag, hashtag listen to your food. So sit back and enjoy something different. into the shell of a fresh oyster. A world of brine, sweetness, and herbs opens to us. And there's a texture unlike anything else on our plates. Now living on the coast in New England or Northern California, oysters are fresh and plentiful. But what about those between the two coasts? What is their experience of the seafood industry? Rob Connect and Sims McCormick of The Real Oyster Cult Source from farmers and ship directly to your front door, making these tasty, carbon-neutral food sources accessible to everyone. The, the, they're the greenest protein source on earth because they require no feed. So an oyster farmer like myself, we go in, we put our oyster seed in the water, we let it grow for two or three years, and we sell it to market. We've actually have a carbon-neutral, if not carbon-negative product. I'm Carolyn Kissick. And I'm Colleen King. Thanks for joining us on Sorceress today, where we'll talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax, of cabbages and cans. Welcome to Sorceress. Welcome to Sorceress. We are talking oysters today. You went up to Boston after we were in New York. Mm-hmm. You know, and as we were listening through this interview again, I was curious about like how long have people been eating oysters? It was pretty surprising. It was like aboriginals in Australia in like 6000 BC. They're like in human fossil history. So that's pretty cool. Like... They'll be here before us. They'll be here after us. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and it's interesting to think about them eating them so long ago because now we're not only using them just as a food, but we're looking to them as a resource. We're looking to them to clean waters, to preserve uh, shorelines. I mean, they're really looking to them as bioremediators. So the Billion Oyster Project, they're putting oysters into the Hudson to clean up this harbor that's just been overpolluted for almost a hundred years now. And it's a natural source. There's no technology needed. They just put the oysters into the bay. They filter out the water and all of the toxins. We're not eating these oysters, by the way, but all the toxins 
you know, get absorbed by the oyster. And then we grind the shells up and use them as like fillers for cement and that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's really cool to be using a natural solution to fix something that, you know, we've created as, as humans. And you'll hear in the interview exactly how that filtration works, which is pretty interesting, but eventually that's going to be a big place where people go and, and dine actually. Yeah. And that's one of the funny things is when you look into why did all of these oysters disappear from the Hudson, actually a major source is people in New York were eating a lot of oysters. They were like every restaurant sold oysters. Everyone was eating like a bag of oysters a day. Like that's so crazy. That is so opposite of how we think of oysters on a menu now. You know, they're like three and a half to four dollars and you like maybe get six and they're like very delicate and they were just like going to town on oysters here in New York a little while ago. It's it's wild how our eating habits can change in such a short period of time. Yeah. Do you did you ever read Lucky Peach when it was out? Oh yeah, I love Lucky Oh, like so visually just and good content too. Great great content. One of my favorite articles was written by Rowan Jacobson and it's called A Clean Well-Lighted Oyster Bar. It's written in the like of Hills Like White Elephants by Hemingway, and so there's a lot of dialogue and it's a little bit cheeky. It basically talked about the experience of eating an oyster on the West Coast like Tamales Bay, sort of being on the shore, how sparkling it is. It's, you know, it's always outside. Um, It's communal, you're with friends, and it's open air. And then the difference between that and eating it in New York, which is usually, you know, it's like high ceilings and a little bit dark, and it's like crowded and... Bottles of champagne, like on a zinc bar, Gabriel Crew there, you know, it's... It's fancy town. Yeah, exactly. And so those two experiences, and not only that, but in uh, we talked a little bit in the interview about miroir, which is terroir, right? Our land and environment has significant impact in flavor um, and characteristics of your food. Same thing with the sea, which is really cool to think about because you are consuming um, the water when you're consuming oysters. One of the things I love about Sorceress is as we've talked to more people, like, do you do you see the amount of similarities that I'm seeing? Like, because it's really wild how these different food systems and supply chains have so many similarities. There just has to be similarities because nature works the same way when it's stressed, when it's high elevation, certain things synergistically work together. And that's just how the world works. So once you sort of peel that, like, marketing layer away... They're all are really similar because they're it's nature. Yeah. So as I'm as I'm listening through the interview and Rob starts going, well, there's no food in the winter, so they are a little bit stressed. Immediately, my brain goes, is he gonna say what I think he's gonna say about like it's going to make them sweeter? And sure enough, he goes, they go, they build up glycogen, which makes them sweeter. And it's because they're a little bit stressed. And so it helps like protect their cells a little bit better. And this is literally the same thing that happens with the agaves in the highland regions because it gets so cold at night, the plants freak out and they suck up all of these sugars and minerals from the soil and the water and hang on to them because they think that they're like about to die or like go into hibernation for a while. And it's like we're it's. It may not be like if you're a scientist out there and you know the specifics about this process and if I'm right about them being the same, but it's 
it's too similar to not be like a little bit spooky, you know, but it, we're talking about agaves and oysters like couldn't be different, but they're just organisms on the earth. And a, a lot of us go through the same things, like even if we are very different, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and I always think I know that they wouldn't actually meet, but I'm like, well, an agave and an oyster would never meet, you know? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. How would they meet? Hmm. <laughs> on, on a plate on a yeah. plate that's where they would meet it's true it's true that's it's for our sorceress party is where they're they're gonna meet eventually actually uh, oysters and tequila are delicious if you get like a super minerally blanco tequila and it's like a little bit cold with some oysters it's pretty delicious well uh fun interview you know rob and sims are really great thank you so much again for your time and Let's get into the interview. Here we go. Uh, sorceress? Is that what we're calling Sorceress. It? I like that. It's very cool. Um, well, sorceress is. <laughs> uh, so we have an oyster farm, and we started farming about 12 years ago. And as we were doing that, we realized um, in the supply chain, we had friends that were traveling the country, even the world, and saying, I just had your oysters in Japan. And then, no, I'm not selling to Japan right now. And the mislabeling and things that are happening in the industry, uh, down the supply chain, or up the supply chain, I should say, um, the shenanigans that can happen with mislabeling. So we realized we can go direct to consumer and they know exactly what they're getting um, and how they're getting it and where it's coming from. What does it look like for a, I would say, traditional oyster sourcing and how it gets to maybe a restaurant? Because I think most of the time, the way that people first encounter an oyster is on a menu at a restaurant. So what does that look like in comparison to what you guys are doing? That's a great question. So um, so I'm sitting at a restaurant and I'm, I've just eaten an oyster. Um, if we go backwards from that experience, um, that restaurant buys sometimes directly from the farm, but very, very rarely. So most of the time they're going to buy from a, a, either a, whole, a seafood supplier or a Whole Foods, a U.S. Food, a Cisco, one of those type of companies. Those companies would then buy from a wholesaler or a distributor. So it can go down the supply chain two, three, or four different times, sometimes even five, depending on the fish market or the restaurant. And then the farm is involved. So, so it would go farm, distributor, or wholesaler to another wholesaler, to uh, another wholesaler, distributor, purveyor, um, and then to the restaurant plate. Uh, so two, three, sometimes four, sometimes even five um, hands are changed. Um, and with that process, obviously becomes time, also becomes temperature, uh, fluctuations in abuse, and then also product abuse. Uh, in Moving in and out of trucks and being hauled in different ways um, can abuse the product. So that those that those processes can happen not always but that's the the worst case scenario four or five times the best case directly from the farm and then what is the difference between how you guys are doing it so you you can go on your website you can place an order you can look at different kinds of oysters different locations different farms and you can order direct and then how long does it take to get to the consumer so our process um, we work directly with the farmers all our product uh, or all our oysters come we also have mussels on our platform and, and clams as well. They all come either from the digger, if it's a clam, um, mussels, they come from farm in Maine that we work with, and then all the other oyster farms get shipped directly to our facility in Boston, and then we ship them within 24 hours to our customer. So technically you could have one of these shellfish at your door in 48 hours or a little 72 hours? 
72 hours at the latest is what we try to it would be yes because there's obviously a day of shipping and we use FedEx currently right now to do to, f to fulfill um, shipping direct to, to your door so yeah exactly and then on a, in a normal supply chain for a restaurant or a fish market it could be a week week and a half before you're eating the product and the, the nice thing about oysters is they are very hardy and they um, they are very resilient um, to uh, to uh, to that, and they can since they are a live product. If they're refrigerated properly, uh, depending on the seasonality of the oyster, they can they can stay in cold storage for quite some time, um, even t up up to two weeks, ten days to two weeks, and and they're 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 safe and delicious to eat. But obviously, every day that they're they're in storage and out of the water, um, they they get a little less fresh. It doesn't mean that they're not safe. It just means that maybe they're losing a little bit of flavor each day. Sure. So what is the flavor difference then between something maybe two weeks out? Is there a specific thing that you can tell? Like, would I be able to eat an oyster and know that this is not as fresh as maybe something that was delivered straight to my door? Yes, and that's why cocktail sauce was invented, and I believe it was invented in Chicago by a, a restaurateur there because in the 1800s they'd have to ship them in rail cars on sawdust with no ice. Oh my gosh. And, uh, <gasps> and they kept them in the shade, exactly. So the chef would get these rancid oysters they had already paid for, and throw some cocktail sauce, which is really heavy in flavors. So you don't even taste the oyster. Um, so we recommend our oysters you eat directly right out of the right out of the box if you if you really game and uh, with nothing on them, and you really taste the difference. I think they're a really hearty animal, and that's what's so great about them. As long as they're kept cold or they're kept in the water, they have the a shelf life that's pretty good. Yeah, for for a live product. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you don't think about keeping fish, you know, some fish in your fridge for 10 days, but you can keep oysters in your fridge for 10 days, and we've done it many times, and they're absolutely great. Yeah. So what, what makes them so hardy? The shells are really tight, so they're going to be, a fresh oyster is going to, you know, you're going to really have to work to get that shell open, and it, the shell seals in all the juice, or the memoir, as people sometimes say, and that's what keeps an oyster fresh, is the is the juice inside the shell. And some oysters have a stronger abductor muscles, what it's called, to keep it closed than others. So we sell a European flat oyster, or um, belong is what it's called, at, at, and those are growing up in Maine. And, uh, and we have to rubber band those because they have a weaker muscle, so they actually don't ship as well. So we put a rubber band around them to kind of give them a little assistance to keep them closed and keep them fresh and keep that, that uh, you know, seawater or miroir in the, in the product. Interesting. So, I mean, it sounds like you can be more detail-oriented and sort of specialize in what kind of... Do you call them varietals? What are they, what are they called? Yeah, you can call them varietals, yeah. Cool. So how many varietals have you, have you worked with so far? I mean, you can kind of split up the coasts, obviously the Atlantic Northeastern oyster, and then there's the Western Pacific oyster, and those are the two big categories. Sure. And then... You know, the European flat, the belong we have. And to. then, so the belongs, you know, are, are French oyster, but they came over to Maine. They kind of naturally, I think, started spawning in Maine at some point, and now they're wild harvested there. Wow. And that's the only wild harvest product we have on our platform, and it's a very heavily regulated. They're only available for a few months a year, um, usually in the winter months, which is what we have on now. Uh, but then in the summer, they're not available because they spawn and regenerate. To answer your question, we have over 70 different varietals from both coasts, and we also have had 
Caparas from New Zealand as well, but that is a Pacific oyster. So really, the Atlantic oyster or the Eastern oyster is the species, and the and the Pacific oyster, and then the Balans, the European yeah. flats. So three different really species of oysters or types of oysters, and then varietals. There's over 300 plus flavor profiles, and we rotate around over 70 of those right. um, on a, on an annual basis, seasonally. Certain mm -hmm. oysters, Pacific oysters, spawn in the in the summer months, so we don't have, you won't see specifics. Some people like a spawning oyster, but most people don't. Um, it, it dramatically changes the flavor profile. It gets bitter, uh, and it, it's it is. It's a little more creamy. And it's, yes, it's creamy and can be bitter, and so we, we, we shift our our buying over to east coast, northeast coast farms. Southern oysters do the same cold thing. Cold water. Yeah, cold water. So. Interesting. So, I mean, I don't know if everyone really considers oysters to be seasonal, but they're 100% seasonal, right? So you're sort of changing based on one flavor profile and also their, their own spawning. Those are sort of the general parameters, but there's also things like when a particular crop is really good and when it's maybe a little weaker. And that, we see that all the time. And it really doesn't always have to do with the weather or the time of year. A lot of times it does. But um, like right now, we, we're seeing, like they call it winter die off, when oysters are just kind of waking up because they hibernate um, mm. during the winter. There's no food in the, in the winter, in the water. All the food source is gone. Sure. Just like all the leaves fall off the trees, same thing. The oceans get really clean and clear. Uh, and then they get really green and full of algae again. And that's when the oysters build shell uh, and regenerate. Um, and then they, they, when they hibernate, they build up uh, uh, what's called glycogen and it makes the oyster really sweet and it's a natural antifreeze because a lot of oysters that are on the shore, if the tide goes out and they're exposed to zero degree temperatures, they won't freeze and die. So it's like a natural antifreeze that keeps them from their membranes from freezing and the cells breaking down. So it adds a lot of flavor. So you get that sweet salt and it's kind of epic. Whoa. So, really <laughs> so there are peaks for flavor and you, you sort of can tell. Yes. Yeah, there are peaks for and, flavor. And then seasonality also based on um, there are certain algaes that are blooming in the, in the water at that time. There are certain green oysters and uh, New Brunswick that are that, that have like a green or a pink hue to them because they're eating a certain algae and that changes the flavor and also the coloration of the of the meat of the oyster, which is really fun too. So we, we try to source those special um, moments that are happening in different bodies of water. Um, sure. And get them to our customer. And we also just really want to be able to give our customer like a really solid product. So it's it's all about that customer experience mm -hmm. and so we try to choose oysters that are just really if they're you know are really peaking so that obviously they can have a great shelf life and they can get to the customer and still be really fresh and you know solid sure so then how do you how do you decide when when to sort of focus on an area that it's peaking um, a lot of tasting <laughs> lucky you yes well, so yeah, a lot of tasting, and then obviously we've done a lot of research, um, and we we're in touch with the farmers, so we they, they'll tell us too. Hey, my oysters are a little off right now because they're regenerating, or the the because sometimes you might think it's in a certain month, and then you contact the farmer, and they say, hey, I think the weather's a little off. We've had the ice hasn't left yet, or it's come in early, or whatever that situation is in their bay, and they'll let us know when when it's when it's peak for sure. So. so do you see people harvesting 
all year and then just choosing the peak times to be able to give it to high quality distributors like yourself or I mean I, sometimes I go places and I see they have like dollar oysters and I'm never sure if that's like something that I should eat <laughs> or if they're just running through inventory I mean I have experience in restaurants I understand how some of those sale type things work but right. you know how do they make those decisions I think it's usually the restaurant or the bar that's making like the dollar oyster sure um, there's definitely some oysters that are more expensive for the retailer to buy sure but generally I think that's not you know that's the a farmers gonna try to sell their product as much as they can yeah right <laughs> year round they have they have employees they have staff they want to keep things going sure. and if they have on, a crop they're yeah. trying to sell so it. usually yep. on a dollar oyster night it might not be a lesser um, a, a, a less fresh oyster it just might be a less quality oyster sure um, or they could just be trying to bring in people yeah, or, or, or they take a loss on the oyster, which is some, some friends of mine that have a restaurant, they'll do an all-dollar oyster night, and it's like, I make it up because of liquor sales because I bring in so many people. So it's like, it's ah. just kind of a promotion. Hey, get in here, yeah, have sure. some oysters, they're salty, they make you drink more beer. Sure. Perfect, you know, so it's a good win <laughs> for everybody, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Let's sort of look at the life cycle of an oyster. What does it look like when they're spawning, and then until, um, you said about two years old is when you can start eating them, is that right? Yes. Well, it depends on it depends on where you're growing them. In the southern regions, they grow a lot faster. Um, but uh, so how we do it in uh, in New England um, is there's two ways to do it. You can do wild caught spat, um, where you're actually um, taking oysters that that spawn, and they'll spawn when the water temperature reaches a certain temperature for a certain period of time. Uh, it's usually around 72 degrees for more than a week. And then the oysters realize, okay, there's tons of food in the water, the water's warm, I'm fat, happy, let's have sex. And so they do, and um, the really cool thing about oysters is, is, is uh, they, are, um, they, don't, they choose their sex right before they spawn. So they actually send out a chemical in the water, and they say, all right, half of you um, guys be guys, and half of you gals be gals, and, and, then they, and then they one produces egg, one produces sperm, and then they do that, and it's almost a 50-50 split. On, the, on them doing that, so it's really cool how uh, how they can sort of choose. And I don't know if year to year they get to choose. Really, <laughs> really interesting, but because uh, I'm not a scientist, but uh, this is what I've read and also been told by some people that run hatcheries. So what we do is, is as farmers, we get you can either collect wild spat, which is is a technique, uh, but most folks um, that I know of on the East Coast get uh, work with a hatchery. So there's several approved hatcheries. The hatchery takes what's called broodstock. So we'll say we have 10 or 12 of our oysters that are deep cupped. Uh, they survived you know, two winters. They're two years old. They look great. Um, the shell looks great. Everything is something that we want to sell to a restaurant that's going to get us obviously the best price. We'll send those up alive to a hatchery. Uh, and then they, they recreate that process of pretending that it's, or, or tricking them into thinking it's summer. They do that by pumping food into the water, and these are in tanks inside a, inside a hatchery, a temperature-controlled hatchery. They slowly raise the temperature, then the oysters spawn. The oysters spawn, create all the seed, um, they, keep the wa- they keep the seed um, spinning in the water column so it doesn't attach to itself, so we get a singular, really small oyster. They're like grains of sand, they're so small. And then once they get big enough, about a millimeter and a half to two millimeters, they send us that product back um, for a, a decent sized fee uh, and then uh, we get we take that um, those baby live oysters and we put them in what's called a flepsy or a floating upweller system uh, and that's in the water usually underneath a dock and uh, and they are then they grow some more they can eat what's naturally now in the water column and we keep uh, we run a, a pump 
that runs water over their mouths and then there's a screen underneath them and, and that brings the water past their mouths. They keep eating and then as they get bigger, we sort them out um, with, uh, with different techniques and then put them in larger bags and, and then grow them even bigger and that's to prevent predation from crabs and other things that might happen or they just would get loose in the water column and we'd never see them again. And then we keep them, some people keep them in containment the whole time. Uh, on our farm, we do mostly on-bottom culture, so uh, or uh, on-bottom harvest. So we would take them through a nursery process to get them to about an inch, inch and a half, and then put them on right on the bottom, almost like a free-range chicken, where they're just in the mud, growing, and they're happy. And then we use a, a drag behind the boat to drag them back up and haul them in, sort them back out, and then and then bring them to market. So, so you're mostly that, sorting by size. And we're sorting yeah. by size. Yep. And so in a lot of so the market, the general market is. Um, there's really uh, several sizes. There's a, what's called a petite or a cocktail oyster that is under three inches. Uh, there's a market size oyster from three to four inches, and then four inches and above would be a large, and then there's extra large, which is really five plus inches, and that's unusual usually. So the, the common oyster is three to four inches is a market size, and most restaurants like that size. New York City is really fond of cocktails. But a lot of West Coast oysters well, are and, and, Yeah, so a lot smaller. of West Coast, yes, exactly. Sims right. So like the Kumamoto, they can be an inch and a half, barely, on some of those. But the, the meats are, and that takes three to four or five years, they're a lot slower growing. So the meats are a lot firmer and and, and I like a two-inch to three-inch. Yeah, so everyone has their preferences. Nice. Yeah, I like a more petite oyster. Right. I have a profile that I really like. I really like the cucumbery, so like, like really. You like Pacific oysters. And I like, I like brine. Um, I don't love the really milky, but as I've, as I've learned, it's interesting because it seems like oyster farming is one, just like so fascinating, but it's, it's sort of this dichotomy where when they're served, they're almost treated like, like wine in the sense that they have flavor notes and you're, you're listing the varietal, you're listening where they come from. They're listed with such delicacy. And then I think about being deep on a boat and you know like the, the other side of it and right. and it's interesting because i don't know that wine necessarily has those two sides it's sort of mostly romanticized all of it even the vineyards and all these things and so right, right. what what is the people the... who work in the fields probably don't feel very romantic yes exactly but i think they're marketed that way right oh, absolutely. um so as far as an oyster farmer what does a typical day look like when you are harvesting so when you're harvesting, so there's there's two real big seasons. There's the seed season, which I just explained, where we're growing seed in an upweller, and that starts in uh, May uh, through August into September, uh, and then then we're sort of done with oyster seed, uh, and then there's uh, and then we plant usually in the in the fall, and then we harvest that same product that maybe you grew in an upweller that you got at a 1.5 or two millimeter seed the following year. So it ends up being about. 18 to 24 months, at least where we are in Massachusetts. Um, some up farther north, it's colder water. It grows a lot. They grow a lot slower, so that's it could be a four to six year process, maybe even longer. Um, but the harvest, um, so, so we seed that, and then a year later we come back and we harvest that, and we drag. Um, at least how I do it, and we do it in Duxbury. A lot of guys and gals, we we drag a. Um, it's just a a, a small little um, bag with a steel mouth on it that has teeth on it and you drag it behind the boat and it scoops up the oysters and you dump them in crates 
and you bring them in and you, uh, we have a sorting facility, which we had told you about that house that's floating on the water. We do that for shade, so in the summer we can sort our product and it's not in the direct sunlight. Again, we wanna keep the oysters cool as possible. Uh, and then we sort them out to size. Ones that are too small, we call those RTGs. They go back, which means return to grant, so they'll go back to our grant or our farm. Um, and then we start sort them out petite, uh, you know, market and large, and then bag them up in 100 counts, because the restaurants and wholesale industry is in 100 counts. Um, and that's something that we do for Real Oyster Cult that's a little different, is we offer, a lot of oyster companies out there will offer you a 50 or 100 count oyster. And um, eat, I, I love oysters, but 50 oysters is a lot to get for even four or five couples coming over to your house. So we do like date night boxes where you get 20 or you can get 30 of three different types, which is really fun. Like samplers is what we call them. So we do different things where we're, we're taking those big lots that the farm wants to, to sell to us and we're breaking them out into smaller ones for individual customers. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a huge demand in general for sustainable seafood. I mean, it's it comes up in almost every conversation that I have about sourcing and, and sustainability. Right, and there's so much confusion around what is sustainability because it's become a word that's so easily kind of tossed Lost around. Over, yeah. And so it can mean so many different things at this point. And I do think, you know, it, you know people just... There's so much gray area within the fish world, yeah. Um, which is what what is nice about oysters is that it's much more black and white. Yeah, it's pretty clear cut. <laughs> it's pretty clear cut. I mean, you can obviously there can be a little shenanigans there, but yeah, with fish especially because when you get a fish and a fishmonger cuts up pieces of fish, several different pieces of that same fish can are now going to three different wholesalers, and all of a sudden you're like, well, where did that fish actually originate? who caught it, and all that stuff. But then, but also it. when it comes to fish farming, which there are more and more good fish farms, sure. you don't know what's a good one and what's not a good one. Yeah. And that is the nice thing about oysters is that all farms are good. Great. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, the, the amount of malpractice... Yeah, I guess you could No, I mean, that, it's yeah. pretty simple. The amount of malpractice that probably can happen is pretty, I mean, it's so regulated as for one. I mean, yeah. in fishing, I think especially, you know, there's a lot of transshipping from what I understand. So maybe it's, um, there's a farm, in, you know, in Indonesia, but then it's sent somewhere else and then it's packaged like it's from there and then it's sent over. And I think in general, this like greenwashing that's happening is really interesting because consumers are starting to become aware. They're, they're very distrustful. Right. of all of these things. And so they're saying, well, I don't know if I want to eat fish. I don't know exactly where it came from, you know? And I think part of what we're trying to do is how do you make a good decision? How do you support people that are working outside of these supply chains that have become so complicated mm -hmm. and so hidden? And because I think the millennial generation has these values, right? That we want to support this and we understand how to vote with our money. And yet we don't always have the information in order to make that decision. I mean, I think in fishing, especially, I haven't even found anyone in fishing specifically that I want to talk to. Um, I'm, I'm still trying to look, but it's it's been really hard. I mean, the, you know, if you go out and you catch it and you just sell it out of your restaurant or out of, you know, a vending area, like yeah. th that's one thing. But how can you, throughout the country, if you're in the middle of the country, how do you make a decision on what you're supposed to eat if you're landlocked, that kind of stuff, you know? So it's pretty cool that you could, oysters is a great alternative because you, one, it's fully traceable and, and two, you can, you can trust it for sure, right? Yes. So I'd love to talk a little bit about the filtration side of oysters because, you know, a lot of people are looking to this industry as, you know, something that can make a major impact as far as our oceans and the health and, and even within climate change. So you said that they filter, though, it's born, it's growing, and then, 
you said within one day. Is that typically the cycle or is that a statistic that people sort of throw out there to conceptualize the impact that they can have per day? No, that's a real statistic. Like an so, adult oyster. Yeah, an adult oyster, which is which is a, a, a two-plus-year-old oyster, um, which is anything that you're going to be eating um, uh, unless you get into southern oysters, and that's a whole other story because they grow a lot faster. Um, but the average northeast or west coast oyster gets to be two years or above. We'll call it an adult oyster. Um, and that can 25 to 50 gallons of water, depending on the size of the oyster, and obviously... The area it's in and if it's you know the, those parameters that's why it's such a big range between 25 and 50 gallons of water per 24-hour it's, period it's still a lot it's still a lot <laughs> whether it's that, 25 that, or 50 yeah. that's a lot of filtration for something that's this big yeah right yeah and then the bigger oysters like you know that are gone put you know that the billion oyster project is using for the new york harbor they're taking oysters that are about like this big or even bigger to really ramp up filtration Wow. So how, how does it work on a on a physical level of them filter, filtrating? So, they, so, so they're so they're um, taking a lot of uh, they're eating algae and whatever's in the water, um, and they also um, remediate a lot of nitrogen out of the water. Um, they also do what's called carbon sequestration, uh, and they take any byproducts. And people say, oh, I'm so worried. I'm, if I eat this oyster and spend filtering water, uh, well, um, again, we go back to the state regulations. But bodies of water are tested, at least where we are in Duxbury, and I know in any body of water in Massachusetts where there's raw oysters coming out to be consumed, the body of water is tested at least once a week, if not twice a week. Um, we have automatic closures if there's rain, more than four inches of rain in a 24-hour period, which means you'd get a lot of runs and runoff that get flushed into the bay uh, or the body of water, wherever you are. It automatically gets closed for a week to remediate and get rid of that. Um, and anytime an oyster does have a red tide or some kind of situation where it could be toxic to humans, the oyster actually gets rid of that. It doesn't. It doesn't sequester. It, it any any heavy metals or any issues in the water. It sequesters it in the shell, which is amazing. So it kind of it builds it into its shell and hides it away. So if you eat the meat, you're still not getting any toxins or any pollutants. Um, so oyster meat that's tested is really really healthy um, or, or, or has very little bio um, issues in it at all um, or. Plastics, anything like that. It's really neat how they how they are kind of this environmental powerhouse warrior that can do that. Um, so so we're lucky in that way as well. But but also it is loaded with lots of zinc, which um, can give you that buzzy feeling. Magnesium, omega threes, you know, tons of vitamins, and so it's like you're eating like. A big vitamin. Yeah. <laughs> and you feel really great. Um, <laughs> So that's another, that's, we also really try to, you know, get that message out because we feel like, wow, it's, you're not only eating something that's a delicacy, but you're also eating something that's really nutritious. And then of course, something that's really good for the environment. So it's kind of a win-win for everybody. Totally. So I'd love to talk about how you make a decision of who you're going to work with because you work with over 70 farms right now, um, both in the Pacific and in the Northeast. So when some, does someone approach you or do you sort of seek out these farmers? Well, we're really lucky because we have a distribution partner in Boston who has a lot. We have relationships with farms, but this, this partner also has a lot of relationships with farms. So we kind of, you know, can work with them to try different oysters and kind of dig deeper on the, the flavors and, you know, what product, what oyster is in season, what's really fresh. And that's how we make our decisions. 
So you have you have a, bi- we, a bigger system, yeah. basically, we, in we order do, to help we you. We do have yes. farms that do reach out to us, um, and you know sometimes um, you know we're not in a position to be able to work with that farm, and it might be it might be as simple as logistically, hey, you're down in this area, and we it, it's not cost effective for us to get your product to our facility right now, but because they're a small farm, and because we we need to, they have to come to our facility one for quality control, and two. Um, because we, as, as I mentioned earlier, we break out oysters into different, if you want to try our sampler, we, what do we have on the sampler now? We have an Alaskan Alaska oyster, Chelsea, Chelsea um, from Washington. Elgin in Washington, and Shipwreck um, from PEI. Yeah. So three very distinct areas that we're packaging all in one box. So we, you know, in the beginning we, we thought, oh, do we ship directly from farms? How does that work? Well, that's kind of too much, that puts too much onus on the farmer who isn't necessarily want to take that on. They're just a farmer. They don't want to have to deal with our business. So in order for us to give our customers all of this great choice, we have to have it all come to one location. Sure. Yeah. And so do you find yourself sort of calibrating with your customers? Do you have repeat customers that are trying these sampler packs and then decide that they really love this one kind of oyster? Like, are you are you sort of finding that you have this, like, cult uh, of people that are following do, you that have a special... Yeah, we have a monthly membership as well. Uh, and so that's exciting where, where we really try to work with our members to bring them what they like. Obviously, if they just like Pacifics, then we'll, we'll try to shower them with amazing Pacific <laughs> oysters. Although sometimes Pacifics aren't available because it's a spawning month and... And then we try to, um, you know, impress them or surprise them with other different varieties. But yes, so we um, people definitely have their favorites, and we have yeah. we have a growing uh, body of customers that really, you know, order every month or multiple yeah. times a month. And though, and what we're and what we're finding is they may have favorites, but they're really oyster lovers to their core. So why they keep coming back is because there's something new for them to try all the time. And they are psyched to have all these great choices at their fingertips. I want to eat these oysters. They sound so, they sound so good. Gonna, when you get back to California, let us know and we'll send you a box. That would be so yeah, good. Yeah, we're going to send you a sampler. We'll put in mostly West Coast. That's where you're no, no, no. Life. I mean, I also think that's what I've mostly been exposed to. Right. Is, is that flavor yeah. profile, right? And it's true. We do find that wherever you grow up or live, people tend to like an oyster from that region. Because I think it's just... It's just very natural. It's just, I don't know, it's, it's like your hometown vibe. Yeah, well, that's true with honey as well. Actually, yeah. honey is sort of nostalgic for people that they tend to gravitate towards the honey. And it's a that... subconscious thing, too, I think. Yeah. I think it's, you're, you're, you're doing it on purpose because when we do raw bars and we ask people, you know, we do them on the East Coast, I feel like people are nine times out of ten choosing an East Coast oyster. But I think when I've met people who live on the West Coast, they're choosing the West Coast. But they don't have to, right? And no, that's what's so have, cool. No, they don't have to. Is maybe there's something that they've never tried before right. that's actually something that they love. And I think right. that's what's cool about being in specialty industries is when I get to introduce... I just did a coffee tasting for my family for the first time, actually. Sometimes I don't think that they have any idea what I do. <laughs> um, and so I said, oh, let's do a coffee tasting. We were all together. And to be able to have them have a super wild, interesting coffee they've never... It, change the idea of what coffee, coffee. is to them, yeah. right? And so to be able to introduce someone on the West Coast to a really interesting oyster on the East Coast is probably really rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. How long are the days for an oyster farmer typically? Are they really long? I mean, it's a different depends process because you're not day. diving. It depends on the day. Yeah, there's in the a, summer? In the summer, it can be sunrise can, to sunset. It can be a very, very long day. It can be a really long day. And then winter, not as much, but the winters can be harsh. I mean, uh, a lot of our Canadian farmers are, are they're, 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 
to work. dig through ice. Yeah, they have to, they to, have to chainsaw through Can ice, and then they go out on the on the ice with um with like a bobcat or a snowmobile and take an A-frame, which is this like welded. Um, uh, sled that has a, a block and tackle system and they can pull their product up that's in cages out to so they can keep working all winter long and it's hardcore work and it's obviously they keep the hours short but um but yeah there's, labor there's intensive some, labor intensive there's some brutal hours in wet in all kinds of weather whether it's really hot or really cold um, so we see it all in farming how has the extreme weather changes? I mean, I see this on coffee farms where it's getting warmer and they're having to plant higher. Um, but then you also see the other swing with the Arctic blast, you know, these kind of things coming down, especially like in the Northeast and the Midwest. How is that affecting the ability to harvest? Is it significant? I wouldn't say to actually harvest. Storms do affect us, but it's more, um, so we, we had a, a warm weather event. We call it a warm weather event. The water got really warm, uh, the temperature, and it wasn't necessarily the air. And, and maybe it is the, the changing climate, um, or obviously it was in a micro level, and that and we got some loss from it. So when we're growing our seed, that's our whole crop for the next two years plus. And if we lose a percentage of that, then that's that's oysters we can't sell. And we put all that time and energy into that up up to that point and money, and and so that's um, we we do have those issues. And uh, and then you know predation with crabs. We have a European green crab, which is a uh, you know not. Um, indigenous to the area it's it so that that's an issue too so we have all kinds of things we battle with mm-hmm. and there's been past winters this winter wasn't too bad but past winters with all like tons of ice and you lose a lot of product yeah. or and every spring it seems like our pro- oysters just get silted under the mud and you think there's like you know about six feet six to eight weeks where we think we've lost everything <laughs> and then you find <laughs> and them and then yeah, and then usually up. All of a sudden, you know, they start popping up, but I mean, it's 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 nuts. It's a crazy business. It's it's, <laughs> it's not nuts. for a yeah. It's not for the faint of heart. Like, <laughs> and, and yeah, yeah, the stress is yeah. significant. It is. Yeah. You guys and can't that, see like this, but farm. they're rubbing their heads. Like. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, like any farmer, and I think for oyster farming, it is it, it, the the risks are a lot more. Well, that's not true because I I know people that grow soybean and corn in the U.S. here, and they they. They do yield a super high yield, ninety percent of their crop or more plus, uh, and there's insurances and different things where our industry is still so small yet we don't have all those governmental support systems yet. So it is, it's not the wild west, but we have a lot less support systems. So you're sort of on your own a lot um, if you do have problems. But that's different for the Canadian uh, farmers that you were talking about, right? So they're getting a ton of resources funneled to them. Yep. If the U.S. did that. Um, what would that look like? Would that give, would it allow young people to feel like they should be doing that, moving towards that industry? Or what do you think the impact of putting a lot of money, subsidies maybe, into oyster farming for the oceans and for the sustainability aspect? I think it's, I think it's, yeah, and I'm not, and I don't think it's um, if, I think it's when it will happen. Um, It's just going to take some more time. And and that's, I think where we're playing a, a unique role is, as farmers, but also as direct consumer and that conduit where we're trying to educate people on how great these are for the environment, how great they are for you uh, to consume, and to really try to champion that to grow the industry. We don't, I I mean, at some point it might be like you go to a a wing, you know, have wings in a a restaurant and you'll have oysters, yes, um, but also you can have a really fancy experience too. So everything in between, and I think it's all great because it will all grow the industry, all all boats rise kind of thing. Um, And the government will eventually get on board. We're just not a big enough industry. We're about, 
the in the U.S. No, actually, in all of North America, it's about a half a billion dollar a year industry, which is pales in comparison to the other agriculture in the U.S. So, but the potential of that of the impact, it's interesting when they're putting so much energy or so much money into these other like these monocrops, right? Yeah. When there's you know, if you sort of yeah. take the blinders off and you look to the side, you can see something that could have significant impact in a different way. Well, and the issue with the monocrops is is they they actually have have an environmental you know impact with water. So they're using so much water, and that's a huge issue, and it's going to become more and more an issue, especially in California, that massive water wars and all that, where we're in the water already, cleaning the water. So it's it's right. Yeah, they'll catch on. They'll make it. We'll make them. Ha- we'll make it. We'll make it happen. <laughs> or be part of it at least. Yeah, we hope to be part of it. Absolutely. I think you're already doing it. That's why we're here. Um, I'd love to. You mentioned a little bit of regulation, so I know that oysters are a very highly regulated industry. Is there regulation on age and size? What's the biggest part of regulation that affects your job? So there's regulation. There isn't a regulation on age. There's a regulation on size for sure in some states and it varies by state to state. Um, There are national standards for food safety for oysters because they are consumer all mostly. Some are cooked. Um, uh, And when that happens, um, so oysters are the heaviest regulated seafood in the industry in the United States. I can't speak for other countries, um, but and that is since you are consuming it raw and you can get sick potentially um, you don't get sick really from the oyster you get sick from bacteria that might be in the oyster that might have been in the water because um, oysters are um, you know very large filter feeders and they're an average adult oyster can filter uh, 25 gallons to 50 gallons of water a day um, and that's what makes them amazing for the environment as well but it also uh, opens them up to any bacteria that is in the water and then they'll store it um, so that being said, this, uh, at least the state here where we are in Massachusetts and other states regulate, and the, and the federal government regulate where those oysters go. So if you're a restaurant buying those oysters, you have to hold the, the harvester tag for up to 90 days. And the reason that there's that long time period is because uh, if someone does get sick, they might go to the hospital a week after they've had that uh, illness or, or during it. And then by the time the hospital reports it back to the state, and, and then they pinpoint the source, it can take up to 860, 90 days, it's a very slow process, um, and that's why uh, they, they have that tagging, um, so that, that they can trace it back to that source and figure out, okay, that let's shut down that body of water because you know one, two, or more illnesses came from that body of water. And it's really just, obviously, oyster farmers don't want to get their customers sick either. Sure. So if someone is getting sick, we want to know right away to be able to remediate that or shut down the bay and not sell oysters because there's something in the water, whether it's an algae or a virus or something like that. There's always this system of tagging that where the farmer, when they bring it to market, you know, everything is dated, time stamped and tagged so that you can always trace where that oyster, you know, has been. There's also temperature logging as well yeah. that has to follow that tag through the process. And is that called cold chain? That it yes. is, yeah. Yes. So in the cold chain process, they want to with, if you harvest oysters within, it depends on the state now, the regulations are different, but for Massachusetts, in the winter, in the summer months, the product has to be below 50 degree temperature um, within 10 hours after harvest, um, and we can get it a lot colder, a lot faster, um, because, and, and that's to keep bacteria growth down um, in, inside the actual oyster. Um, what do you use in order to maintain cold chain when you're shipping? Are you using dry ice? So we use reusable cold packs, um, which is nice because you can put them in your freezer and use them for a picnic or you know in your beer cooler if you if you like. Um, so we try to 
recycle those or have our customers reuse those. Um, and that's a gel pack uh, that's inside there frozen. And then we use a temperature sensor, which is a little gel, uh, gel temperature sensor that lets the customer know that if the oysters have broken that cold chain, they've gone above 50 degrees for more than two hours, then um, there's a little signal that goes off on, on the little temperature sensor and that will let our customer know uh, that, that the cold chain's been broken and then we will reship oysters or we can, we can encourage them if, if they wanted to still eat them to cook them. Interesting. Yeah, I um, just spoke with a Farm Girl Flowers, uh, which is out of San Francisco, and they overnight f- flowers. And they, they do a similar thing just shipping across the country because they're sourcing flowers internationally and then it comes across and it's in these trucks that can be 80 wow. degrees and they, they can wilt. Oh, and yeah. so they do it for yeah, their own safety. Flowers. Yeah. That would be talk about stressful. It's very <laughs> difficult. It's it's a pretty it's a pretty awesome episode because I, I didn't know how difficult this was. Oh, I mean yeah. I well, so, have so much respect. Yeah, there's so there's so delicate. I mean we ship rocks. Yeah. Oysters are hardy and rocks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean they, they can chip and, and actually that's you know, we've had some issues with that if a box gets dropped or something. Sure, you can yeah. Ship the property. But yeah, flowers, that's a whole other story. Yeah. And I mean, I love that you guys are able to ship these directly to people's door. So I know that most people encounter an oyster in a restaurant for the first time. But the culture of being able to have oysters at your house and to serve it maybe just for you or for a party or with friends, to be able to do it inside or outside, I mean, that kind of cultural shift everywhere in the country is probably pretty amazing to watch. Well, we... It's still new. (laughs) It's still new. We're still trying to get out there. But that's, you know, coming back to what Rob said in the beginning, that's one of the reasons um, we, you know, we started this company was because we have an oyster farm and we have, you know, this house on the water where we where we work and we would bring our friends out there in the summer and have a great time. But part of that experience was just getting oysters, you know, from the well underneath this floating house and opening them up and feeding them to people. and. The people would ooh and on. They kind of like, wow, that's so cool, and they'd love it. It is an entirely different experience shucking oysters around your kitchen island or in your backyard, or even we sometimes will take them to the beach. Sure, you can eat them anywhere. The park doesn't have to be the beach, yeah. Um, and it's just it's very visceral and. Well, there's also a difference too when you go to a raw bar, let's say at a wedding or an event, and someone shucks an oyster and you eat it. Oh, this is and great. And they sort of present it. Or to they you. present it to you at a restaurant, which is great, and that's all. That's all great and part of the experience. But actually, teaching someone how to open an oyster and then they're opening their own oyster and then eating that, there's something like Sim said, so visceral about yeah, people... it and so rewarding that it, it is really it's catching on. So when we t- teach people, they're like. This isn't so hard. Well, this is amazing. It's like, yeah, and it's fun. And we're gonna actually be at the Billion Oyster party this spring, and we're gonna have a ta- like a shuck yourself table there. Cool. That's yeah. amazing. So tell me a little bit about this project because you mentioned it a few times. What what project? The million. The oh, the billion oysters. The billion oysters. Yeah. Um, well, you have you heard of um, the billion oyster project? I have. Yes. Been. Okay. So they're trying to put a billion oysters in the New York Harbor to remediate all the water and bring it back to its full glory. And they chose a billion oysters because they feel like that is That's the number take. that you need wow. to restore uh, the water quality, but also have the oysters sustain themselves and then spawn again and be able to regenerate. Um, it was the largest ecosystem on the planet at one point, from what I've read, uh, and maybe that's arguably, you know, but single ecosystem as far as a re- the reef and the amount of oysters that were in that watershed. 
Um, and then obviously from overfishing, since they were a wild harvest, uh, in the late 1800s, it decimated the population and then it never rebounded with industrial pollution and all the other aspects of commercialization of New York and that whole area. Uh, so they're trying to restore the water with oysters. And the, the issue they have is, is they can't, people can't eat the oysters because obviously it's, it's, it's not it's safe. Just, yeah, it's um, the water isn't safe enough yet to do that, so they have to keep them in containment, and that's really challenging. They have to build these cages, put the oysters in cages, because they put them out in places, and then someone could go, oh, are those oysters down there? And they jump down there in the middle of the night, and they take them, and they take them home and eat them, because people right. love oysters. So sure. that's a big challenge they've had. And, they think uh, free oysters. Yeah, so they have this party every year, and, and we've been involved with it for a while. And, uh, and yeah, we're, this year we're doing a, um, like a shuck yourself table at the event, so people can learn how to shuck and get that experience. And when is that? It's in the end of May. May 9th, I think. Yeah. Early May. Um, and they invite oyster farmers from all over, and they... I think there was 50 farms there last yeah. year from all over and the country. all these different farmers come and shuck their oysters, and people buy tickets to support the Billion Oyster Project and try all these different oysters. And then they take um, kids from uh, the Manhattan and, and the, and the uh, boroughs, I guess, and, and run them through the project so they can sign up for it and either go after school or with their school yeah. sign up teachers and be a part of it and actually get hands-on learning experience. Wow, um, that's amazing! Yeah, and stuff like that. So it's a cool program, and there's good people that run it, so we, we support it. And where are they? Where are they sourcing uh, the oysters for this? Are they choosing a particular oyster? You were saying that it might be a larger no, oyster. We, they, we, we gave donations. Them some, yeah, we gave them some of ours. Yeah. Wow. People, people donate. So they're donating their oysters, and then they're sort of putting them there in a contained environment. And the idea is, in a few years, five years, ten years, maybe you can have a healthy oyster population right. and an industry. Yep. Yep. Cool. Do they have an idea of how long that might take? I think there's so many parameters in that. I, yeah, you would have to talk more with them or go on their website and research it. <laughs> they probably do, and I, I don't know what. I don't. I, I just. Yeah, I don't know the particulars. It's just. It's just something cool to support because it's. We believe in the mission, and obviously we are as oyster farmers. The water quality piece is huge. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there anything else that you think that people should really know about? Um, you know, the oyster industry when they're making decisions or anything that's really pressing that the oyster industry is sort of uh, taking a lead on as far as environmental or sustainability? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say on to that is, is you know, especially if you're in a restaurant, um, and, and, and the server may not know, and, and, uh, and the chef should know, uh, you can ask where they came from, are they, are they farmed or are they wild harvest? Um, there's very little wild harvest left. Um, 90% of the seafood in the United States that's consumed here is imported. Um, the oyster industry is, there were, they were a thousand, in 2017 there were a thousand new restaurants or uh, that either had oysters new on the menu or new oyster bars and restaurants. So the, the industry has grown 22% every year since 20, 20, uh, since 2000. So it, it, is a, it is a very sustainable growing industry. It, it provides jobs for people. Uh, it remediates the water. It, I mean, your choice is can couldn't be better for our coasts, um, and we see that a lot of people in the Midwest are starving really high quality good seafood, and to, you know to try to have them demand or seek out oysters is a great choice, um, especially if they're from the U.S. I mean, and, and Canada too, because mm-hmm. um, we have a lot of Canadian friends that are farmers that are growing an amazing product, at, at, and they're even at a larger scale because the Canadian government's putting a ton of resources behind it to, to sort of replace these fishing jobs that are getting lost. So that's also a neat thing is, is, is it's farming, it's sustainable, you can do it every year and every year you grow, you can grow, hire more family members or friends and, and um, 
and grow the industry and clean the water all at the same time. So it's a, it's a really responsible, delicious choice. Nice. So, thank you so much. It was so you. wonderful to chat it was with really you. Great. It was a pleasure. Big thanks to Rob and Sims for taking the time to chat. If you're interested in checking out all of the oysters that they carry, you can find everything online at realoystercult.com. And stay tuned for our music segment, where our music curator discusses the cultural and musical history of the region and product discussed in the episode. Hey there, everyone. This is Danielle Maggio delivering you the sonic sauce of Sorceress. For today's segment, I want to pay tribute to the regional identity of our sourced ingredient and explore this region as a site for one of the most important music revivals in the country. I'm talking about New England, the northeast corner of the United States, famous for its historical seaside towns and also home to some of America's oldest folk music traditions. Between the 1940s and the early 1960s, the folk music revival achieved national popularity amongst the left wing and the youth, acting as a steward of traditional American music, highlighting the hybridity of the American soundscape and emphasizing its radical roots in opposing the ruling class. And New England was a crucial site for that revival. So let's get into it. New England is deeply connected to the sea and its inhabitants had been coming into contact with sailors and traders from the moment it was forcefully settled upon. Early English settlers, and later the Scottish and Irish, brought their traditional ballads over to the quote-unquote new world in the form of sea shanties. A sea shanty refers to the singing that was done by those laboring on ships. This type of singing helped lift morale and entertain the sailors, but more importantly, it had a utilitarian function. The rhythm of the singing matched the labor required to operate a sailing ship, which required a coordinated group effort in either a pulling or pushing motion. So the sea shanty not only passed the time as a form of entertainment, it also kept the time for the laboring sailors. Another equally fundamental element of the American folk music revival was the African-American blues tradition from the Southern Delta region. In fact, Many of the songs made popular by folk musicians were originally carried on by African Americans who had learned and preserved those songs through oral tradition. In many ways, folk and blues are interchangeable. Blues is the original folk music of America, itself being a hybrid of African-derived musical practices and European ballads. While these two genres may seem to have little in common, Sea shanties and African-American blues form the basis of the American folk music revival. Perhaps the single most important African-American folk artist to impact this revival was a man named Leadbelly. Leadbelly was born in 1888 and lived until 1949, right around the time when the folk music revival really began to gain momentum. It's said that Leadbelly knew over 500 American folk songs by memory. These songs would go on to be recorded by early ethnomusicologists, creating the repertoire for later generations of folk musicians. Many of our most cherished American blues and folk songs have no singular author other than the American experience. One such song was called Goodnight Irene, 
It was this song, originally recorded by Lead Belly, that Pete Seeger, a folk music legend, would record in 1948 with his group, The Weavers. Goodnight Irene reached number one on the Billboard charts for 13 weeks and set the music industry in motion for the folk music revival. Now, shortly after musicians like Pete Seeger had some mainstream success and notoriety, folk music was driven underground in the 1950s due to the Red Scare, a shameful moment in American history where citizens, many of them artists, were accused of being un-American and of spreading communism. Folk music had always been associated with left-wing progressive politics, a sentiment that no doubt stems from its African-American origins and its early colonial history in New England, which saw some of the most focused opposition against colonial rule, dating back to the Revolutionary War. Folk music was often used in anti-communist propaganda, and it wasn't uncommon to see warnings about people carrying acoustic guitars, for they were, according to the American government, likely to be the enemy. Barred from mainstream outlets, folk artists were restricted to performing in coffee houses, schools, and private house parties. Because of this, the folk music scene became a phenomenon associated with bohemian places like Greenwich Village, North Beach, and in the college and university districts of cities like Boston and Cambridge. In the late 1950s, a tiny coffeehouse in Cambridge became a mecca for folk music in the U.S. Dozens of soon-to-be folk stars stepped through the doors of Club 47 to test out their skills and hone their style. Club 47 was started by two women from Brandeis University. It was open for a decade and acted as the center of the folk scene in New England. This folk scene mecca is where 17-year-old Boston University dropout Joan Baez got her start, playing traditional materials like Scottish and Irish ballads with their roots in the sea shanty tradition. And in 1962, an unknown, scrawny kid named Bob Dylan came knocking on Club 47's doors, performing covers of old Woody Guthrie tunes, as well as original topic songs he'd written about the civil rights movement. These new young artists would go on to shape the sound and politics of the early 1960s. Folk revival artists played a large part in igniting the country's commitment to civil rights. During the 1963 March on Washington, Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, and popular folk group Peter, Paul, and Mary sang the American folk anthem, We Shall Overcome, in front of hundreds of thousands of people. And African-American folk artist Odetta, who Dr. King called the queen of American folk music, sang three songs before Dr. King gave his iconic I Have a Dream speech. So the British invasion of the mid-1960s, along with Dylan going electric in 1965, helped to bring an end to the mainstream popularity of the American folk revival. However, the folk music revival helped to establish the singer-songwriter genre, ushering in a new generation of politically progressive musicians like Phil Ox, James Taylor, and Joni Mitchell, who riffed off of the traditional material and created more personal poetic styles of folk. This deep connection between American folk music and progressive politics has been present since the genre's inception. Drawing its sound and repertoire from New England sea shanties and Southern African-American blues, and emerging its culture through underground bohemian venues like Club 47, 
The American folk music revival teaches us about the progressive work of musical preservation and cultural hybridity. To listen to this week's playlist, as well as access playlists from past episodes, go to Spotify or Apple Music and search for Sorceress. That's S-O-U-R-C-E-R-E-S-S. You can also access them through our website at sorceresshq.com. The playlists are public, but we hope you'll consider subscribing to our podcast so you can get fabulous fresh updates each week and easily access the playlists. Thank you all so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the sonic sauce of Sorceress. Sorceress is written, directed, and produced by Carolyn Kissick and Colleen King. Our music curator is Danielle Maggio. Theme music by Flatbroke Robot. You can find us online at sorceresshq.com or on Twitter and Instagram at sorceress underscore underscore. Until next time, Sorceress fans, stay curious. Listen to your food or tag at Food Farm Pod.